Okay, go ahead and repeat this. We are now on the Statues and Stories with Adam Levinson. We're going to be talking about Columbus, considering today is Columbus Day. As my daughter would tell me, oh, it's the day uh, that the natives were slaughtered. Oh, and I go, honey, uh, you know, you go to public school, could you, like, censor yourself, please? Because none of that is she, it, we're not celebrating that. We're celebrating discovery, exploration, the new world, uh, new and brighter well, things. Columbus was the way that the word of God was brought to the American Indians. So that should be grateful and, and blessing uh, for that. Okay, so in other words, Adam, take over. Sure. So uh, welcome, everybody, and today is Columbus Day, so we're going to cover all of the complexity and all of the dimensions of Columbus Day, which is also known as uh, as Indigenous Peoples Day. There are various names that we'll talk about. We're not going to just talk about 1492, which is the year he set sail. We're going to talk about his legacy, and there's positive and negative, but we're also going to go back well before Columbus to talk about the Greeks. We're going to do math and uh, the spheres and the shape of the world and what was known in the Middle Ages. So we're going to cover a lot of territory tonight, and I'm thinking out loud with you that it makes sense to start with, um, you know, it's uh, today it's uh, 2019, so we're going to cover several hundred years of actually more than 100. We're going to cover a lot of territory. Uh, but I'm, I'm wondering, where, where do you want to start? Do you have any particular request on where we want to start for well, this holiday? Well, what is... I'll give you a couple options. So one is when the holiday was first recognized. We can talk about... We can talk about Columbus and uh, his idea of heading west instead of heading east. Uh, we, we can talk about some of the controversies. So where would you want to begin tonight? Well, why don't we start with uh, Cristoforo Colombo? He was born in Genoa, Italy, which is a trading city, uh, a big rival of Venice. And I understand that he, uh, actually his brother and he moved to Lisbon, and they started sailing on the Atlantic. Why don't we go from there? There you go. So let's talk. start with Columbus. So uh, you are right. He was uh, very well-traveled, and he was very learned. So he had not necessarily gone to college, right. but uh, he understood through through travel, through, uh, through expeditions. And by the way, the Portuguese at this time frame, let, let's talk a little bit about what was going on. The Portuguese had, uh, I won't say monopolized, but they were, they were trading, uh, and they were some of the early navigators in this time period in the 1400s. Well, they were the leaders in, in sailing down the African coast. That's right. And Columbus was familiar with what the Portuguese were doing. And, uh, you know, Portugal was very close to Spain. Uh, So uh, having been involved with the trade and having been familiar with a lot of the writings and a lot of the reading and the math, etc., he he was interested in, instead of taking that long trip, which goes around the coast of Africa to get to India, and and here's a little bit more of the the dynamics at the time, the political political status, was that uh, this is 1492 when he's going to leave. And uh, by the way, he spoke Latin, he spoke Portuguese, he spoke Castilian, he's Italian, right? So he speaks several languages, and he was well-read in astronomy, geography, and history. And uh, having done been aboard boats, his father was not a trader. His father was a baker and he was a weaver. So he doesn't come from a, a very prosperous background. But he realizes that there's got to be a better way. And uh, he decides that I'm going to try to convince the European monarchs that uh, let's try to go west instead of going east. Uh, and what's the reason why some of the monarchs want to do this? And the quick answer is that uh, it's very profitable, these trading routes. And what had happened at that time period was uh, the talk about how Spain uh, removed and expelled the Moors. We can also talk about something else that happened in 1492 with regard to Spain expelling Jews from Spain. But uh, the, uh, the Ottomans uh, had conquered the, the land routes, and now it's more difficult to trade and get to India, which is where they're trying to trade, uh, across land routes. So that's why the Portuguese are going around Africa. And Columbus decides, let's, as I said, try to go 
west, which is across the Atlantic rather than the east. And, and I want to point out to you that the, the mythology around Christopher Columbus was that people thought that, that at least today, uh, when you read some of the, the history books when I was uh, growing up and, and when I was in middle school, and I have, by the way, sitting in front of me, I should point out to everyone, I like to do this when we do our Statutes and Stories Hour. I've got a history textbook. I have a middle school textbook for my, my kids. I have a copy of Howard Zinn's A People's History of the United oh, States. Oh, come on. You got to go with the book that we featured. We can talk about it at the end, so we yeah. can cover the holiday from multiple dimensions, yeah. right? I've got a copy of the letter, by the way, that that uh, if we have time for it, that Christopher Columbus can you, writes. Can, can you hear Edward Al playing like a little kid with rappers? The audience is hearing him break into a package at a moment in time when Columbus is discovering America, and I can't get him to stop. Look at all the paper he's ruffling. People well, hear okay. everything he's doing. So we're, we've got a lot we can cover. We've also got the letter, and I'm horrible pronouncing some of these names. Sure. The letter that Columbus writes to Louis de Saint Angel, de Saint Saint Angel. Yeah. Uh, so this is describing his trip. And uh, by the way, my kids in school they, they read that letter uh, as part of their history program. So we, we can read some of these primary sources, which is what we do on the Statutes and Stories website. We don't just rely on me. I'm not a trained historian. We get into the weeds of looking at the actual documentary evidence. And I'm going to mention a couple other books tonight, including and we do some of them now. So um, you know, the popular understanding when I was growing up was that the Earth was flat. The Europeans thought it was flat, which is why they're not heading west. But as it turns out, Columbus, I think, gets credit for being an adventurer. I think he gets credit for being someone who wanted to explore, right? But the, he was not not, he did not innovate the idea that the world was round. He right. knew that it was not flat uh, because all he had to do was read what was being taught in European colleges at the time. And let me prove that to you. So Pythagoras, and this is the same Greek, um, you know, the, the Greek mathematician, and Aristotle and Euclid, uh, they knew that the world was a sphere. Ptolemy wrote a book called Geography. So this is during the Roman Empire, uh, 1300 years before Columbus. So the intellectuals of their day, the Greeks, the Romans, etc., they knew that the world was round. And then that book, which I mentioned, Geography, written by Ptolemy, became a standard reference book. And Columbus had a copy of that book, Geography, uh, which talks about the world being round. So again, it wasn't Columbus who decided that the world was round. This was being studied. In other words, well-educated Europeans understood that the world was round, although the common understanding may have been a little bit different for sailors and uh, in certain circles. Uh, so, you know, to his credit, uh, you know, he was the one that wanted to actually take the step and, and try to, to sail that direction. Uh, so that book, uh, which I mentioned, Ptolemy wrote the book Geography. There was another book, Sphere, written around the year 1200, which I said was required reading in European universities. So, so Columbus had access to these materials, and uh, he is able to convince the Spanish monarchs. And uh, I'm wondering if anyone just wants to mention some of the names. So who was the king of Spain and the, and the, the queen of Spain well, in 1492? There was no Spain. It was actually... Uh... Queen Isabella of Castile, the Kingdom of Castile, and uh, Ferdinand, the Kingdom of Aragon. So that was that was he was selling. But it, you know he tried to pitch the idea to the Portuguese, but they turned him down. I think he also pitched it to the French court. So he went around shopping the idea of sailing west to get east. That's right, and uh, one of the reasons why he's successful in convincing Spain or the Castile. the newly formed Spanish uh, yep. Republic, if you will, or the Spanish.
Spanish nation state. Uh, so Spain was just recently unified. Yep. There aren't that many of these countries. So England had been unified. France and Portugal were the unified nation states. Yep. And uh, as we said, uh, Spain, Spain, as it's uh, becoming a unified country, uh, tied itself to the Catholic Church, expelled the Jews, expelled the Moors, which are the Muslims out of Spain. Yep. Uh, but the Turks, uh, who had conquered Constantinople, uh, controlled the Eastern Mediterranean, and they controlled the land routes. So Spain mm -hmm. and uh, you know, these emerging countries want to find other ways of getting access to these profitable trading routes. And uh, he's able to convince Spain to, uh, to, to yeah. go with his idea. Yeah. Uh, so let's talk about the three ships, and this is for our younger well, listeners. But, let me, but let me tell you, you know, the Portuguese had been sailing down the African coast since 1420s or so. And uh, their, one, the Portuguese king was known as Henry the Navigator because re they really sponsored these. So when they heard Columbus's idea, they turned him down because they figured they would get to uh, India by way of going around the Horn of Africa. But they did send a ship west from Lisbon, which was never heard from again. So, was that before Columbus, before 1492? Yes, before 1492, they sent a ship straight west from Lisbon, which was never heard from again. So they said, forget it, we're going to keep going south uh, and work our way out around Africa. The, the, the real, I think, one of the insights that Columbus had, and this was from his time with his brother living in Lisbon and sailing, because he, he was a sailor, so he was always on the, out on the sea. He understood that the winds, the prevailing winds in the North Atlantic, on north of the equator, go clockwise. So if you want to sail west, you have to sail south first and get closer to the equator so that they bring you. If you look at hurricanes, when they come to, uh, to Miami or to, to Florida, they come from the West African coast around the Canary Islands and the Cape Verde Islands. Cape Verdes were, were uh, owned by the Portuguese. They had conquered that. The Canary Islands had been conquered by the Spanish. So when you think about going west, Columbus sailed south first to get closer to the equator because he knew that the hurricanes and the, the winds went uh, clockwise, and that's how he wound up in the Bahamas, actually. So he was right that the world was round. He was yeah. right to take that chance and to try to do it, even though yep. the Portuguese had failed from what you're describing. Yep. He just didn't understand that the size of the world. He only right. thought it was he, around 2,300 miles, right. so his math was a little bit off. He was wrong on the size of the sphere. That's right. But he knew well, in the size and the scale, but he was right in the, the way yeah. that he'd eventually be able to get there, and he just didn't yeah. know that there would be the American uh, the northern and uh, right South bumping it. In fact, he never admitted that he had not reached India, because his contract with the Crown of Castile was that he would reach India, and that nobody could disprove it. So he always insisted that he that he had reached India, uh, and it was so, and that's why it was another Italian navigator. Americo Vespucci, who got the, the, the name The Continent. There you go. So uh, the other quick observation is uh, how does he convince the, well, I'll call him Spanish, uh, Fernand, yeah. Fernand yeah. and Isabella. And uh, part of the answer is that uh, he's suggesting to them able to get gold, which is what everybody's interested in, as these new nation states are emerging, that can be used to finance a crusade to reclaim Jerusalem. Yeah. 
He's also trying to explain that I'll take a 10% cut and uh, the rest of the money will be used to support my investors. Yep. Now, let me talk real quick about 1492. Uh, so the year, uh, and it's interesting, the date that they leave, yep. we could get into some of the weeds, but I mentioned that Spain had expelled the Jews and the Moors. Yep. And uh, yeah. it is uh, theorized that the several of the members of the crew, and we could still talk about uh, may not have just been the crew who were forced to leave Spain, uh, you know, may have uh, may have been Jews who were being yes. forced to leave. They had a Jewish scholar who spoke Arabic languages because they thought they might run into uh, Arabs, uh, Arab speakers uh, on the other side of the world, which eventually Magellan did when he got to the Philippines. But, yeah, there were a lot of uh, con uh, Jewish converts and forced converts in the crew. That's right. So it was a multi- um, yeah. uh, a wide-ranging group of crew, I think. Right, right, yes. All right, so uh, what's the time frame? The time frame is it's 1492. Let me give specific dates now. And uh, they decide to leave on October 9th is the, is the date. That, no, no, sorry, they, October left, 9th. they left in August, and they arrived on October 12th. That's right. So okay. October 9th, I wanted to mention, is uh, Leif Erikson's Day. Ah, okay. We've got, we've got Columbus Day, which we're celebrating now. Right. Just a couple of days earlier, October 9th, is Leif Erikson Day. So I want to mention yeah. that uh, although Columbus was the first European in the year 1492 to reach uh, you know, the Americas, uh, the, the Norse, or the, the Vikings, yep. uh, had, had, uh, had yep. 500 years earlier, uh, had reached uh, you know, the northern area of uh, British Columbia. And by the way, Leif Erikson is following in the footsteps of his father, because right. Erikson's father which is uh, uh, the Red. Uh, Eric, Eric the Red. Yeah. Eric the Red had uh, explored Greenland. So right. it, you know, when we say Christopher Columbus was the first to the... I must interrupt Earth. because there's Mac on the Rock Day, October the 11th, 1964. Forget it, forget it, forget it. That's my birthday. So we also have to mention, while Christopher Columbus was not the first, because obviously we just mentioned the, the Vikings had been to into North America. Uh, we also have to mention that there were probably in the neighborhood, and the numbers can't be precise, but uh, millions of indigenous people were living in the Americas. Yeah. They'd obviously discovered it first. And well, we'll they came from Siberia across uh, probably the Bering Strait during a period when the, the ice had formed, and so the, there was a land bridge from Siberia to the Americas. So I think they could be uh, properly called Siberian Americans. By the way, in the, the letter, which I'll talk about later if we have an opportunity, Columbus, Columbus's letter, which took Europe by storm, became very right. popular because it talked about all these riches and all this exciting territory. Alone, yeah. The St. The Angelo letter, uh, he describes that the, the Native Americans had access to boats, which were large canoes. Right. He talks about the speed of those boats, but it's pretty clear those boats could not have gone across the Atlantic. It would I agree, it would have been coming across the, um, you know, the, 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 during the Ice Age, the, the frozen bridge that connected Asia right. through Alaska. Although, you know, the the, the uh, American Indians could have taken the Gulf Stream from from Miami and and landed in uh, Cornwall in about a month in a sailboat. So you could do that. The Gulf Stream is a very powerful current that goes up to uh, Ireland and Cornwall. So this is something interesting that I came across, and I'll be posting about it when I get an opportunity. And I always like to try to connect holidays and events. Yep. To one of my heroes, Alexander Hamilton. Sure. Here I'm going to make an effort to make that connection. So um, although when I grew up, when I was a kid, I was taught, and I remember the map, they would show you a picture of the flat earth and ships going over the side of the earth. So that's the mythology. Right. The question is, when I described earlier how the, the, the Greeks and the Romans, they understood that the earth was a sphere, why were we led to believe when we grew up, and I'm, 
not sure, Manny and Ed, if, if you remember what you were being taught, you know, why was it that uh, there was this notion that, that Columbus discovered that the Earth was, was not really flat, that it was round? So long story short, this connects to Washington Irving. So in 1828, Washington Irving, who was an American writer, one of the first American authors to sell best-selling novels and to make be successful in Europe, he wrote a book called The History and Life of the Voyages of Christopher Columbus. So Washington Irving, and this is the same Washington Irving who wrote The Headless Horseman, uh, who came up with his notion of New York as being Gotham. So there's, there's a lot of Gotham City, which is, of course, Batman. So Washington Irving, or Irving writes this book about Christopher Columbus, and Washington Irving, even though the title sounds like it's a biography, there's a lot of fiction in it. And in order to sell his book, he creates this, this story that Christopher Columbus um, you know, had convinced everyone that uh, this is important and that uh, it's based upon this false narrative that people thought the world was flat. So that comes from, we've got Washington Irving to thank for that, and what's the connection to Hamilton? Washington Irving, before he was a writer, was a lawyer. Washington Irving worked with um, Aaron Burr. He worked in Aaron Burr's, and then also with uh, some of the other attorneys that Burr and Hamilton worked with. Uh, so that's where we can connect uh, the story of Columbus uh, to, the, uh, to, uh, to Hamilton. Well, I, I think that one of the best histories of the voyages of Columbus, written in English by an American historian, I think was Samuel Elliott Morrison, uh, Christopher Columbus, Admiral of the Ocean Sea. That was written around 1940, and that's uh, I would I think that's a good it's a real history. It's not fiction. Uh, Samuel Elliot Morrison, he's a Harvard historian, and uh, Christopher Columbus, Admiral of the Ocean Sea. You know where he gets that title from? Admiral of the Sea, Admiral of the Ocean. Well, Admiral is a, a is a Arabic word for a a naval leader. So that's but then the Ocean Sea. I guess the, the the Atlantic was called the ocean. The ocean was uh, one of the Greek gods. Ocean was one of the Greek gods under Neptune, who's a general god of the seas. Is that that was in the contract that oh, okay. Columbus had with Ferdinand and Isabella yeah. that he would get that title, okay. and uh, that was also part of the deal. He'd get ten percent of all the profits or all the gold right. that's recovered. Yeah. Uh, so let's we'll yeah. do a little bit more about the, the time frame, and then we'll get into some of Columbus's legacy. Yep. And we'll talk about the trip too. So I incorrectly gave the date of when they left. So let me set the record straight on when he actually left. So they take off on, let's see what the date is. August something? August 3rd is when they leave Spain. But interestingly, uh, they have to stop in the Canary Islands right. with the three boats. And then to mention for all the listeners, the Nina, the Pinta, and the Santa Maria, yep. one of the three boats, the Pinta, the rudder, the rudder broke off. And there's some discussion amongst some historians that it may actually have been uh, sabotaged, and that's because the books, the, the boats, sure. the Nina, the Pinta, and the Santa Maria, the boats, uh, may have been misappropriated. And uh, in other words, they weren't. Uh, there, there are questions about how uh, the king and the queen got those boats. Sure. Uh, the owner may have been trying to sabotage the boat. Right. So because they were trying to get to head west, uh, they had to stop in the Canary Islands because the rudder of the boat isn't working. So it yeah. takes them about a month to fix the boat and get a, get resupplied. Well, they were, but they, uh, but the other point, though, is they, they went to the Canaries because they were going south instead of going straight west from from Spain or Cadiz or uh, wherever they took off from. They went south. Columbus understood that if you want to go west in the North Atlantic, you have to go south and get the prevailing winds. And then if you look at the, the, the storms and the hurricanes that come to Florida, they all form around the Canary Islands and the Cape Verde Islands. And let's tell the listeners where, and you're exactly right, the Canary Islands are south of Spain and Portugal. They're not too far from the coast of Africa, or at least right. they're closer to Africa. Right. So uh, they, they're waylaid for about a month at the Canary Islands. 
and then in uh, in early September they resume their journey. They leave from the Canary Islands and they head west. And you're right, they're heading uh, southwest is the direction that they're going. And they make landfall, and we're not sure exactly what island, but they hit landfall in the Bahamas. And the right. Bahamas has uh, probably more than 100 islands. So we're not sure which. Yep. Uh, so they they make landfall on the Bahamas, and then he travels around uh, for about five months, traveling around uh, Hispaniola, naming islands and claiming every island that he finds that, to belong to the king and queen. And uh, we can talk about what they do while they're there for those five months. Um, but I also want to mention that there's a very famous mural that people want to, we're doing radio, which is uh, audio, but if we try to make it visual. So in the, in the capital, in the rotunda of the capital, there's a very famous painting. And this very famous painting, let me tell you what the name of it is if anyone wants to Google it. It's called The Landing of Columbus. Okay. And I'm horrible pronouncing some of these names by John Vanderlyn. And uh, he's a neoclassic painter. And this was hired uh, by the, by Congress in order to do some, it was commissioned in 1836 to help decorate the, the Capitol Rotunda. And there are other famous pictures at the, or, or the these are big, you know, paintings in the Capitol Rotunda. Uh, so if anyone goes on a trip to Washington, make sure you yeah. check out the Capitol building. I think uh, I've so. seen that. It, you're right. Uh, we went to, uh, we were guests of uh, Senator Ted Cruz, and we walked around there, and uh, I think I remember seeing that. That's uh, That was in 1836? That was a long time ago. It was commissioned in 1836. It wasn't actually put in and finalized uh, for about 10 years later. And here's another interesting connection for the Hamilton lovers out there. But um, the painter that I mentioned, John Vanderlyn, uh, was actually a protege of Aaron Burr. And Aaron Burr sent him to Paris to study. And he later then got that commission to do that work in the Capitol building in the 1830s, which he completes in the 1840s. I hope that uh, Speaker Pelosi will not have it painted over like it's being done in uh, one of the schools in San Francisco. So let's talk a little bit about some of the controversy for the holiday. So I want to refer everyone again to that St. Angel letter. And uh, it's, it's a very important historical document because it gives a firsthand impression. This is, this is uh, you know, Columbus writing to his investors and writing to the king and queen. And uh, this is really the first account uh, in writing of, of what he sees and what he experiences. So I don't know if I want to ask you guys a couple of questions, but let me mention some of the islands that he comes he names. So he says, to so the first which I found, I gave the name San Salvador, in commemoration of his high majesty, who marvel- marvelously hath given all this. And Indians call it G-U-A-N-A-H-A-M. Maybe that's Guanaham. So that was the name of what the Indians call it. And that's the reason, by the way, when uh, when he was calling the Indians Indians, he thought, as he said, he was an Indian. Yeah. He goes, he goes on to talk about some of these other islands. He names one island Santa Maria de Concepcion, the third he names Fernandina, mm-hmm. and then Fair Island, and then La Isla Juna. Uh, he says, I did not find any towns and villages on the seacoast. Right. Some have small hamlets. And then he does an interesting discussion about the Native Americans. And uh, I think it's useful to read some of his discussion. So um, he talks about, which I thought was fascinating, and part of this can be a little controversial, but he talks about how they don't have steel or iron or any weapons. And he describes how they're not militaristic. Right? And of course, what, he, what Columbus is looking for is gold. He describes the fields, and I'm skipping around, the soil beautiful and rich for planting and sowing. 
And he talks about the people who first come out are incurably timid. That's his language translated from the Spanish and the Latin, incurably timid. Mm-hmm. And once they get more familiar with, uh, with Columbus and his crew, uh, they are extremely generous. And I want to read some of the generosity here. That once they lose their terror and they lose their timidity, they're generous with what they have to such a degree as no one would believe but him who had seen it. Of anything they have that is asked for, they never say no, but do so rather invite the person to accept it and show much lovingness as though they would give their hearts. And whether it be a thing of value or one of little worth, they are straight straightaway content with what so little trifle or whatever kind is given to them in return. So he's talking about how these, these Native Americans... Um, uh, he, he goes on to talk about their canoes and how they travel on these long these long boats. He talks about the, the houses that they're living in. Uh, up to 600 people can be living in the same uh, big round house, uh, these communal societies. Uh, but he also talks and tells the king and queen because he's not finding much gold. Uh, he talks about the crops that are there. And let me read this, which is some of the controversial language. He says, the first island I found, I found I took some of them by force. So, so what does Columbus do? He takes about six of the Native Americans he forces them on his boat because he's going to use them to help him navigate and tell them where things can be found. And they're not talking English or Spanish. They're probably talking through gestures and through articulating, etc. Uh, but he also makes a fortification in Navidad, is a town where he this is now going to be in, in Haiti. Uh, so he makes a fortification there, and he leaves behind about 30 so, 30 to 39, I'm not exactly sure, uh, troops he leaves behind. Um, but uh, they also capture uh, men and women to take back to uh, to the king and queen. And there's language in the letter where, how, where, I'm sorry, where, uh, where Columbus describes how these would be good servants, uh, and ultimately uh, many of them get enslaved. So I want to talk real quickly more about the, the positive legacy, and let's do the, the Columbian exchange. So in the history books, kids will learn about how um, what is the Columbian exchange, and that's this terminology about the, the goods that arrive in Europe from Americas, and there are also goods from Europe that'll, that arrive, uh, you know, so it's an exchange. So what, what are some of those uh, goods and, uh, and animals and products? So the Native Americans had corn, they had, I'm trying to think of some of the other examples, they had corn, they had uh, beans, uh, they had, uh, there's a whole host of avocados. Uh, tobacco. I'm sorry, did you say something? Avocados. Uh, avocados, uh, beans and peppers, right, cotton uh, was also going to be exchanged. Uh, what what are the no, Europeans? No, they had cotton in in. Uh, didn't they have cotton in Egypt before the Colombian uh, discoveries? No, but they didn't have it though in Europe and the Native Americans. That's one of the things he mentions in okay. his letter that the, that they did have cotton, okay. although it may not have been the same kind of cotton. So, what yep. did the Europeans bring or implant into the Western Hemisphere? Syphilis. The answer is cattle. Uh, they bring in. They bring in syphilis. <coughs> Sheep and pigs. Uh, there's also, of course, a big controversy about disease. So the, right. the Western uh, Europeans bring disease, not necessarily on purpose. Uh, and uh, just to give some of the numbers here, and, and now I'll briefly talk about uh, the book of People's History of the United States. So Howard Zinn gives some of the statistics about how there were probably around 250,000 Native Americans living on that island of Haiti. Uh, within 60 years, there are probably only 250 of them right. left. So that's one of the reasons why, for Native Americans, they don't want to call it Columbus Day. They want to call it, uh, you know, they don't want to be celebrating Columbus when and many yeah. listeners and viewers, uh, it's, it's a genocide that resulted to some of these Native American communities. Well, it was with the, guns, yeah. germs, and steel. And uh, 90% of the American Indians, especially in, not only in the Caribbean, but also in Mexico and then the mainland, they, they started dying from all the diseases that they were not 
uh, they didn't have any immunity against. The Europeans, you have to realize, were the survivors of the bubonic plague. You know, so they were they had lived in the Eurasian landmass for a couple of centuries or more, whereas the American Indians had separated from the Eurasian landmass, which is the biggest landmass in on Earth, uh, maybe ten thousand years before. So all the this is what you get if you get isolated. You gotta. You, I always tell my kids to get in the game. Uh, the American Indians were uh, were just not ready for the diseases that these. Europeans who had survived all sorts of uh, plagues brought with them. There's no question that disease played a large part. But I'll also point out, let's go to Columbus's second second voyage, because there were four voyages that he makes. So the first voyage is the three ships. He leaves one behind. In fact, they used the wood. Well, one of them actually crashed. It was shipwrecked. It ran aground, so they they then used the wood to build the fort, and they returned with two ships after about five months. I found the bell! Yeah, and and Manny was trying to sell the ship's bell from the shipwrecked uh, flagship. There you go. So the second journey, once everyone's excited about what they found, returns with 17 ships and around 1,200 sailors (laughs) and troops. So the second trip is an effort to uh, make sure that uh, we were able to pay. And and by the way, when Columbus returned from the first voyage, uh, he brought back some Indians with him. Many of them died, by the way, on the trip back. He brings back uh, some of the the food, some of the animals to convince the king and queen that this is worthwhile going again. And obviously they agreed because they send 17 ships with 1,200 sailors. And uh, some of the controversy about the second and subsequent trips is because he's not able to find large quantities of gold. The gold will be in Mexico and in South America. Uh, They're capturing hundreds of slaves, and they're putting them to work, and they're putting them to work mining. So it's not just the disease that kills and decimates the Native American populations. It's also the forced labor, taking the men to go into mines and taking the women to work in the fields. So it's a combination of reasons uh, why why it was the the genocide, which some people refer to it as. Uh, Let's talk about the Italians and uh, the the commemoration, which I thought was very interesting to learn some of the history about uh, about when the the holiday was recognized. And we can debate about what it means today in 2000. 19. So a little bit of the history. So we, we mentioned the, the book by, um, who did we say, by... Um, which one? So the, the book from 1828, uh, which sort of... Oh, Washington Irving. Washington Irving does the mythology about how the world was flat. And for the next 100 years, everyone believed that the world was flat, and Columbus is the, the one who comes around and, and convinces yeah. everyone to the contrary. And that was the false narrative. But let's now skip ahead from Washington Irving in the 1820s uh, to the 1860s and 70s. And after the Civil War, uh, a lot of the African-American community in the South is leaving to go north. And there was an issue in Louisiana where they didn't have enough uh, labor. The cost of labor was going up after the Civil War in the dockyards. And uh, Louisiana and some of the southern states wanted more European laborers. Uh, So a lot of Italians were brought in for various reasons. And uh, there were issues with the Italians and the Irish were leaving in the 1840s and 50s because of the famine in in, in Ireland. But uh, the the point is that there was an uh, important event um, in the 1860s and 70s uh, where there was a riot and uh, a very popular Louisiana police chief in New Orleans Orleans, uh, had had been killed, and they blamed the local Italian community. Some of them came from southern Italy and from Sicily, so they they blamed the the, the local citizens in Louisiana and and New Orleans blamed the Italian community. And there was a riot, and about 11 uh, people were, were, uh, were 
rounded up and taken out of the jail and they were hung. Right. And by the way, I'll point out that that's not terribly uncommon at that time period right. to have African Americans being uh, being hung up and right. and, uh, and uh, what's the terminology that's used for? They were lynched. And I'm sorry. They were lynched. Lynched, right. So you had this lynching, uh, which unfortunately was too, too common back at that time frame. But now the lynching is being applied to the to the uh, to the Italians. And Italy finds out about what happened with 11 Italians who were just killed. And the Italian government says to the American government, "This isn't acceptable. We want to be, uh, you know, we want remuneration to take care of the families." And uh, they're they're criticizing America for what happened in in Louisiana. And the king, the, the king, the, the president at the time was Benjamin Harrison. And Benjamin Harrison, let me read a little, little bit about what happened. Because of this mass lynching, um, he agrees uh, to try to make amends for what had happened. And uh, also part of the story is that in the 1860s and 70s, the Italians and the Irish uh, were doing local parades. They're trying to say that, you know, if we show Columbus as being a founding father, they're trying to tell a narrative that, you know, we're not, although we're immigrants, you know, we, we should be treated as Americans also, uh, especially if we can show that uh, the Spanish and Columbus, who came from Italy, Genoa, as you mentioned, uh, if we try to portray them and we can insert Italians into the American narrative if we can show Columbus was the first founding father, not just Washington and Hamilton and Adams and Jefferson. So you had this mass, lyn mass lyn lynching that happens, uh, as I said, in the 1870s, and President Benjamin Harrison agrees to make Columbus Day, which at the time there were local parades that was being celebrated in the local Irish and Italian communities. He agrees to make it a, to recognize it as a, as a national uh, celebration. And then you have the 400th anniversary, which is 1892, so it's not yet recognized as a federal holiday. It would be Roosevelt in 1937 who recognizes it as an official federal holiday. And I'll point out to you that if you go around the country, although it's a federal holiday, many states, including Florida, and the first, by the way, was South Dakota, have said, no, we're not going to recognize Columbus Day. We're going to recognize instead other holidays, including, uh, in, in a lot of these states that I'll mention, including South Dakota, it's, it's referred to as Native or in, Indigenous Peoples Day. So they don't even want to use the use the word Indian, because uh, that, uh, some would say, is not politically correct, so they'll call it Indigenous well, Peoples Day. Siberian American Day. There are about 30 cities where they also celebrate, um, instead of Columbus Day, they'll treat it again as um, Indigenous Peoples Day, so 30 cities around the country. And there have been incidents, by the way, of uh, statutes being decapitated, the statue of Columbus in Staten Island that was decapitated. Uh, well, probably what is the most famous, especially for New Yorkers, statue of Columbus, which is in Manhattan? It's in Columbus Circle. Columbus Circle, there's a very tall, and it's on a, on a big pillar. Yeah. Uh, so the circle is named after that statue of Columbus, and there have been some who want to take down that statue. I would disagree. We can debate about that. I, I think we want to keep the Columbus statue there, but I don't. I don't disagree that we can celebrate multiple uh, holidays and occasions and recognize the history today. And um, by the way, we mentioned earlier that October 9th is. Uh, you know, in certain communities, they celebrate the Norse Day or Viking Day because that's when the Vikings. And sure. here I'll throw out to you, it was 1962. So who, who would the president have been who recognized for the first time um, Leif Erikson Day to, to celebrate the North, the Norse arrival in North America uh, 500 years earlier? Jack Kennedy. So it was actually right after Kennedy. So if I have the date right, it was, uh, it was Johnson. Johnson. Oh, John, Lyndon, Lyndon Baines Johnson. LBJ. All right. Let me give some more details about that New Orleans incident. Trying to get the Viking American vote, no doubt. There you go. So that date I gave was 1890. It was when David Hennessy was the police chief in New Orleans. 
uh, when he was when he was killed, and that's when there was this protest and the, the, the lynching of the eleven Italian Americans. And uh, what else can we talk about that? So um, President Harrison saw the carnage and understood the criticism, and the Italian government wanted to make sure it broke off diplomatic relations, it wanted an indemnification from the American government, which Harrison paid. And in 1891, he, in his State of the Union address, again, this is President Harrison, uh, he calls for protection of foreign nationals. Uh, and uh, these are some of the early events that then lead to the Columbus Day well, celebration. You know, uh, today I was reading the Wall Street in the New York Times, rare, rare for me to read the New York Times, but there was an editorial or a story by Brent Staples, Who's been an editorial writer there for 40 years, and he his the title of the of the article was how Italians became white, and Brent is black. He's a black guy from Chicago, and so what he was saying is that back in the 1890s or in the 1800s, uh, Italians were not considered white in America. Of course, the Irish either, but uh, and so Italians wanted to become assimilated. They wanted to become uh, you know Americans and and just accepted. And one of the things the Italians did in New York and it was, and around this time after the the, the lynching in, in New Orleans, was they said, "Hey, we're we're Italians. We are like Christopher Columbus, and Columbus was one of the founding fathers." Stretching it a little bit, and eventually that idea kind of caught on, and I think uh, today Italians in Texas, Italians are considered Anglo's. So. That's part of the how a, a, an immigrant group assimilated into American civilization by you know claiming uh, Columbus as their uh, contribution to America. So that's why there's a lot of pushback whenever people want to take off. I think uh, Mayor de Blasio, with an Italian name, uh, wanted to take uh, Columbus down from Columbus Circle, and a lot of Italians got, got together and he thought better of it. So... It's, it was part of the assimilation process for the Italian-Americans to have uh, a hero to contribute to the American uh, pantheon. And it, that makes the larger point about what does history mean? And we've talked about this in other nights, about historiography, the study of history, not just the details of history, but the study of the writing of history. And I completely agree that uh, for Italian-Americans, for American Catholics, who were a new wave of immigrants, this yeah. is the turn of the century, uh, the late 1800s, uh, this is putting them into the American story. So I don't disagree that, that they should be recognized for various reasons, not just uh, for Columbus, but, uh, you know, and, it, and you're right, it's celebrated by Italian-Americans uh, because that's the way of putting them into the story, building a narrative, that they're, they're the, it's a formative role, that they're the first immigrants, if Columbus is the first immigrant, and, uh, and redefining what we is, redefining what American is. Um, so that's why you get that Columbus circle where you're putting in New York with large Italian communities uh, and in other communities where you have lots of Irish and Italians and Catholics. Mm -hmm. So interestingly, the National Italian American Foundation, which is the NIAF, has written on this subject about should we be changing the name of Columbus or Columbus Day? And their answer, and I'm going to read some of this to you, um, and this gets into the debate about Indigenous Peoples Day. So this is what the NIAF, the National Italian American Foundation, this is their official policy on Indigenous Peoples Day. So they say that they're not opposed to establishing such a holiday. Native Americans, like Italian Americans, should have a right to celebrate and educate others about their history and culture. We believe that to repeal Columbus Day as a federal holiday 
which is celebrated by 20 million Italian-Americans, uh, only to replace it with another holiday created by another ethnic group would be culturally insensitive. So the National Italian-American Foundation wants to keep it Columbus Day, but they're very happy to have other holidays for, for other groups. Um, and by the way, the states that have changed the name, which includes Florida, are Alaska, Hawaii, Maine, New Mexico, South Dakota, and I said about 30 cities. And uh, the quick observation here is that um, you know, the holidays are days to be celebrated, and I'm all in favor of as many holidays as, uh, as we can give. Uh, and, and this gets, there's a, a poem, and I wish I had printed it out, but there's a poem about whose day is it. And uh, there, the idea here in the poem is that there are a litany of other possible alternatives if we want to, instead of just call it Columbus Day, and then some of this is tongue-in-cheek. You know, for Italian-Americans, the name of the, uh, the poet is Diane de Prima. Uh, you know, she's joking that uh, we could also call it Yogi Berra Day or Connie Francis Day or Frank Sinatra Day. Uh, but I don't disagree that it, we should maintain a holiday to celebrate Italian-Americans and a holiday to, to celebrate other groups as well. So what else can we talk about for what, what the, the results were and what, what, the, what the legacy is? And let me skip around a little bit. So 1790. So let's go back to early American history under the Constitution. Uh, what is the year of the first Congress? To remind everybody, 1789 is when the first Congress meets. And uh, 1790, if you go to the website Statutes and Story, is when they do the first naturalization law. So this is defining who is a citizen, who can be naturalized as a citizen. So if anyone does a Google search for the Naturalization Act of 1790, which is the first immigration law, um, you'll find out uh, what that law provided. But basically, any free white person within two years could be naturalized. And this is when you start that conversation of what is an American, who can become an American. Uh, so that's on the Statutes of Stories website. And then and we see how the holiday is. Uh, so you're saying free blacks could not be uh, U.S. citizens? Correct. When you when you go to Statutes of Stories and look up the text of that law, which was the Naturalization Act of 1790, uh, and this gets to that question that you mentioned earlier, the New York Times article, the only people who could be naturalized according to that law were, quote, free white persons. And if someone who's an Italian, uh, this is 100 years later, right. do they qualify as being a white person? Right. And that was debated. In fact, it wouldn't be until the 1960s when we started cleaning up some of those immigration laws that were put in place. So that's why you know, the holiday and the parades were used. We talked last couple, two weeks ago, we talked about um, getting suffrage for women. And it was through political education. It was through marches. It was through letter writing and, and awareness that the women were able to get the right to vote. And this is uh, Italians and uh, those from Southern and, and Western Europe. So originally, a lot of the settlers of America in the 1780s, uh, you know, the early founders from uh, from England and from Western Europe, uh, their complexion was a little bit different than those from South Southern Italy. Uh, and and we, could, we could talk about how Italy is a diverse country also. North Italy, you might have blonde hair and blue eyes, whereas Southern Italy is sometimes a little bit of a different complexion. So that's right. When, when you read that New York Times article, it, it got into a definition of what is whiteness. And I'm just pointing out to you that that, that law from 1790, which was the first immigration law, only allowed free white persons to become American citizens to be naturalized. Mm -hmm. And interestingly, that originally it was only two years. It was expanded to five years. And then in 1798, it looks like under Adams, probably going to go to war with France, and we're fighting in the Caribbean a, a struggle over, over commerce, and this has to do with the Napoleonic Wars and whether or not America should side with France or Britain, uh, and they extended it to, to make it 14 years, and then when Jefferson became president, they lowered it back to five years. So that, that history about who becomes an American, what is an American, is a continuing conversation that uh, didn't start with Columbus Day and isn't going to end with Columbus Day. Yes, and in 1798, they passed the Alien and Sedition Act. 
and that that was uh, aimed at French uh, citizens, trying to keep them at bay. Because I think Adams was a pro-British uh, president. That's right. And it's interesting that it's the same year that, that uh, when they increased the requirements for naturalization, you had to live here for 14 years. We started at two years. That was in 1790. It was expanded to five years. Then in 1798, at a time of, of hostility, so mm-hmm. there was concern that we were going to war, they increased it to 14 years. And then when Jefferson came back in, or I shouldn't say came back in, but when the, the Democrat-Republicans defeated the Federalists, defeated Adams, right. then they, they shortened the period so it would only be five years to become a citizen. But that's you know, part of this conversation about Columbus. What does it mean to be American? What does it mean to celebrate America and the story of America? That's what, what the holiday is celebrating. Um, so we, we talked about the position of the National Italian American Foundation. Let me talk a little bit about these ideas for, Indi- for Indigenous Peoples Day. And uh, of all places, and I think Manny will get a kick out of this, the first city to adopt the holiday, the first city council, and this is 1991, was Berkeley, California. And uh, the idea is that Christopher Columbus, sure, he represents what wisdom. Values. Columbus represents values of discovery and risk, which is at the heart of the American dream. But you also have to be sensitive to some of the consequences of, uh, you know, what happened to these indigenous populations. In 1989, I mentioned South Dakota became the first state to switch from Columbus Day to Native American Day. Um, Baltimore, by the way, has a very large Columbus monument and was probably the first to have a Columbus monument, the first city to do a big Columbus monument. But that was vandalized in 2017. So I'm hopeful that as much as people may disagree about Columbus Day, you know, I think we can all agree that the vandalizing statues is unacceptable and that doesn't appreciate history when you're sure. when uh, you're taking out your frustration on a statue. Well, I think what, one of the things Columbus teaches is that the... the uh the failure of being culturally isolated. You need to get in the, into the cultural stream. And I think the tragedy of the American Indians and Native Americans was that they, they had been cut off from the rest of civilization for, say, 10,000 years since they went over the land bridge over the Bering Strait. So they, they missed all the advances uh, of Chinese civilization, you know, firecrackers and, and fireworks and all sorts of other and then especially the being cut off in the Middle East, which was the source of a lot of the writing. Uh, I, like I said, you know, the, not only the ancient Greek stories and literature, the Roman achievements, but also the Judeo-Christian uh, scriptures and knowledge of that. So, it, I mean, the moral of the story is don't get, let yourself get isolated. Get in, get in the game. Because uh, you can't, you know, you, there, it was inevitable that eventually the people of the Eurasian landmass would bump into the people of the americas so it's 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 sad uh, that in that especially they suffered from all the, the measles the measles in particular were a real killer but you can't you know you, it's kind of it was inevitable that there would be a, an encounter if not a discovery on the other hand you look at columbus and uh, he was a real uh very knowledgeable about everything except he misunderestimated the circumference of the earth he, he, but he thought through like the way the the winds in the northern North Atlantic would go. He knew he had to sail south in order to go west, and and just the courage. The uh, I, you know I think he was very religious as many people then were, and so he kind of he he was the the precursor to the scientific revolution that would come a century later. He was trusting that our Creator described in the Bible from Genesis and especially the Psalms of David, is not a guy who's going to mess with us. He's not going to put us in some place that's impossible to figure out. 
So I think it was that trust in the Creator that led him to think that that the you know if the Earth was in orbit and uh, and if he went west that he would not fall off the face of the Earth that he would hit something. So I think it was a very much of a a religion and a faith-based leap of leap of faith for uh, a, a guy like Columbus. Let me talk a little bit about the ships, if we can just imagine what it's like to be going on this journey. And uh, when, you, when you talk about the winds and you talk about the currents, it takes longer to get to the Americas, from Europe to the Americas, than it does to return. And that has to do with the Gulf Stream. But of the three ships, the largest of those ships was the Santa Maria. Uh, I won't ask you how long it was, but it's about 100 feet long. And uh, the number of crew... I'm trying to think if everyone is, uh, how, how many people do you think are around the boat? And the quick answer is only 39 crew members. Wow. If it's only 100 feet long, these boats that Columbus is using are not, not gigantic. They're not enormous boats. And that was the biggest one. That was the biggest of the three, right? Um, so we said they left the Canary Islands. It takes them about 33 days to cross over. Uh, and he had told the members of his crew that uh, the first person who can actually see land, and, and eventually this, it sort of reminds me of the story of Moses, I'm sorry, Moses, of Noah, right? When yeah. uh, after the flood, uh, you know, the, the bird and twigs, and right. uh, they realize that uh, you know, eventually we're going to survive this thing. So uh, he, he tells uh, some of the crew members, the first person who can sight line, land will get an award or, or get a reward. Uh, so that was promised to the first person who would actually be able to see the land and uh, I would have thought it would have taken longer, but it only took 33 days or so from the Canary Islands to get all the way. Well, he's through. lucky that it wasn't a, hur a hurricane coming. <laughs> they, they, they had problems on the way back, which is interesting that uh, they didn't go straight to Spain. They landed in Portugal, right. and, and uh, then it took a little bit longer for them to get back to Spain. So what kind of agriculture did the Native Americans or the indigenous peoples in, in the Caribbean have? And he writes about this in the letter. They had corn, yams, cassava. Right. right. They are spinning and weaving. Uh, they did not have horses or work animals. Right. And uh, when Columbus uh, builds that fort, when one of the ships runs aground, this is at Haiti now, yep. he leaves 39 crew members with instructions to find and store gold and left them with supplies. Uh, when when uh, Columbus returned for his second voyage, those Americans were no longer there. So they were not Americans. The, uh, the, those that he left yep. at that fort were not there. And uh, the explanation is that, uh, you know, I encourage people, you, you can read about some of the diaries and you can read some of the histories. In fact, there's a book called The History of the, Indi the Indies. Let me say that again, The History of the Indies, written by, I'm horrible pronouncing some of these names, but Bartolome yeah, de, de las Casas. Casas. Yeah, Bartolome de las Casas. Yeah, he was a, a Franciscan uh, friar. That's right, he was a priest, and he had access to, to the diaries and the journals of of Columbus, and he tells some of the stories about uh, some of the treatment of the women and the treatment of uh, the Indians. And that, interestingly, Columbus does not die a wealthy man. Uh, he gets uh, called back after the third voyage because he's basically the governor, and he's giving out parcels of land to people who come with him to uh, try to, uh, you know, make money for the king. And uh, there, are, there are claims that he's abusing the Indians, and uh, he gets recalled back to Spain. And he sort of redeems himself. He gets to go for the fourth trip, uh, but he uh, originally and mention this, if any of our listeners are stamp collectors, and this gets into the story of narrative and teaching history and, and how history is used. So there's a very famous collection of stamps, and this is in the 1790s, I'm sorry, 1790s, this is in the 1890s, uh, and this is a time when um, presidents, by the way, today no one collects stamps, but when I was a kid I used to collect stamps. So in, uh, Me too. So in 1892, there's a very famous set of 
I think there were 15 of them starting, and it's called the Columbian Stamps, which tell the story of the Columbus expedition, you know, starting with Columbus meeting with the king and queen and uh, the ships and the um, that, that famous scene where they, they go to the land for the first time and they plant the flag. And uh, so it's a very famous set of stamps, including a $5 denomination. So starting all the way with two cents, going up into the 50 cents a dollar and a $5. Uh, so... Um, that was in 1893, the Colombian exposition stamps, and there were a total of 16. I said 15, but 16 of those stamps. Mm-hmm. So if, you, if you're able to find one day the $5 stamp in that set from 1893, that's a valuable uh, for hobbyists who are stamp collectors. Absolutely. In fact, in 1893, the Colombian uh, World's Fair was held in Chicago on the south side, and uh, there was, uh, as a result of that, you have the University of Chicago is based right next to where the exhibition was uh, held, and it's grown up from from then. And the Museum of Science and Industry was in one in the main uh, exhibition hall, and that's the most visited museum in the state of Illinois and really the in the Midwest around that region because it has all this science and technology things that all the school children like to go from even into high school. It's a very interesting museum to visit. And, it's and based on I'm agreeing with you that big cities that have large Italian populations, well before the holiday was recognized as right. a federal holiday, Italian communities would rally around Columbus Day, as we said, to you know to teach history, to to popularize Italian American history, and uh, to make their culture and uh, you know, get, get greater acceptance in society at large. And uh, just as the Italians and the, and uh, the, the Talk about other ethnic groups. The, the Irish experience discrimination. It's a way to push back against discrimination. So I, I agree, celebrating the holiday. Yeah. Um, well, let's talk a little bit about... Um, when are we going to talk about the bell and why it stayed right, in the so Dominican? Manny uh, had, knows the guy who has discovered the ship's bell from the shipwreck. You're not supposed to say that. That's what the whole well, Miami Herald article was all about. It had nothing to do with the man who found the bell. It has to do with the bell and okay. it's authenticity okay so now you've acknowledged today i've seen it yeah uh yeah you did you get to touch it no you did yes oh yeah that's just got to touch it and everything uh um i'm happy that you said adam that he did he definitely in his in his days he was basically the governor of santo domingo and he was uh basically uh in trouble financially (laughs) and the the story that uh of the bell was that the grandson commissioned the bell's return in, uh, I believe it was in the late 1500s. So in other words, for the grandson to to ask for the bell back, he was in the middle of a divorce and he needed the money. So he thought grandfather's bell would sell. And guess what? The ship that returned the Santa Maria bell from the vault in Santo Domingo, where it, it, it sat for probably 50 years, clearly states that it was put in a chest of silver coins. So when this gentleman finds it, and I've already disclosed that it was a male, not a female. Well, he was shipwrecked off the coast of Portugal. Portugal, yeah. And the problem with Portugal, they were offered the bell because he wanted the, the coins in which where he found the bell. Right. And But he wouldn't disclose to them where these coins were, so they didn't want the bell. And so there was like, you know, we're not going to trade this. If we accept the bell, then we're assuming that that's all we wanted. Well, he ends up... Uh, leaving the scene, mysteriously leaves the country with the bell, and never to be talked about were the coins. 
his biggest mistake when it comes to bringing the bell to America to sell here, and of course, Blink Radio, WS2F 94.5, was more than happy to grab the publicity and do our best to get it on the front page of the Miami Herald. And you got a great press release, too. Got a great press release by, uh, uh, I don't know, some like real famous press release. Ice Crowd Newswire. Ice Crowd Newswire, alias Ed Vidal Worldwide. And, man, Ed, you know that Ed uh, did the press release? For the bell, and it ended up in a press in a in a news uh, program in Guam. Oh yeah, we have worldwide reach. It was really impressive. And they got into the Miami Herald, and they paid attention to it. And yeah, it got into the Herald, and then I guess I make, making calls, and this press release showing up on the radar. Yep, uh, got the interview. But boy, did they pick the worst freaking guy to do the interview? A guy who was not known for his, he's known for muckraking. For local news, scandalous stuff, oh, he, public corruption, that kind of thing. He thought it was a sham, right? Right. He treated the article. He talked about more, was more interested in who found this bell and why it was the bell, and he ignored all the evidence that it was the bell because of the metallurgical uh, studies that was done. The bell, mm-hmm. the brown, the the bronze that the bell was made of, was consistent with the the bronze bells that were made in that time of Europe. In the parts of uh, anywhere from northwest Spain, right? Northwest Spain, but this particular bell had more uh, silver oxidation on it than its bronze oxidation. In other words, it was paper thin bronze in the center, and it was mostly, uh, I guess, uh, algamated uh, silver. You know, I don't know how exactly the scientific formula when silver were to corrode after 520 years in the sea, but it showed that it was a bell that was in a chest of coins. Not on a mast, and then uh, the fact that the that the two countries not necessarily fought over the bell, but the, the fact that the, the the Portuguese, when they found out he was auctioning it in Madrid in two thousand nine, they came and raided the the auction house. Spain did this favor to Portugal, giving gravitas or giving publicity to the the legitimacy of its find of the it being the bell. And the truth is, it was a, just a really heavy when I grabbed it. Really heavy bell, old with a big old hole in it. But the biggest mistake was the Spanish coin of that year. Right. Okay, of the uh, the coins in the chest were in between the uh, fourteen and fifteen hundreds, and he he being male or someone chipped the encrusted coin from the bottom of the bell, which time stamped the bell. Is the biggest mistake he made throughout the process. I don't know who did it. But you could see that there was a space uh, encrusted in the bottom of the bell uh, for the coin, and he handed me the coin, and it fit there perfectly with a little pie shape uh, snapped off it. You know, it was typical of cutting little pieces of silver off these coins to buy stuff of lesser quantity. So I now forever should be included October the 11th, the date of my birth, and somehow between then the October the 9th and the 14th they got to be a place for me Mac of the rock the discovery of the Christopher Columbus bell Santa Maria bell so i just wanted you to incorporate that in your story next time adam because you know we're at towards that towards the end and since i've been quiet this entire hour i thought i'd plug in you know the you're rampage at the, the end bell. 
Yeah. We can connect the story of Columbus to keep his cane and to into this show, which is phenomenal. Yeah, and you know, and Ed, you know, have you noticed that Ed was, you know, quite spirited today? You know, he was very informed. Oh, yeah. Columbus is one of my favorites. He also visited Cuba. Uh, unbelievable. So and now, you, if you, if you okay, go we'll go another Cuba hour restaurant and uh, you you want to eat some of what Colum- what the the Indians had, order yuca. That's cassava. It's a tuber, and it's really starchy. And oh, uh, yeah. it was a basic food for the Taino Indians in the in Cuba and, and the Simonese. Yeah, yeah, and uh, the Taino Indians were more of an agricultural people, and the uh, Carib Indians were were moving up from uh, Venezuela, what's now Venezuela, and they were more uh, seafaring and they ate fish, so they were leaner. And uh, they were having a, a war between themselves before Columbus arrived. So it was not all peace and happiness here in the uh, Western Hemisphere. And then if you get to uh, once you get to Mexico, the Aztecs were actually eating people. So it's not like Columbus interfered with a uh, yeah peaceful tribes. Yeah, it was there was a lot. It was the, survival the of the in, fittest. Yeah, the local Indians were you know no better than the Europeans and vice versa. And I guess what well, we still eat each other today. So yeah. what the hell? No, no, no. The the uh, Europeans introduced ritual cannibalism uh, instead of the actual cannibalism of the Aztecs. Ritual cannibalism being Christianity. But that's that's. Well, but that's the that's end of the story. story. <laughs> so uh, uh, give just a, a couple more details on that Colombian exchange and the positive legacy, and then we'll do a little bit of the other legacy. Sure. But the, on, in terms of cuisine. You guys are absolutely right. Europeans gain potatoes, corn, tobacco, peppers, beans, squash, peanuts, and my favorite, chocolate, also turkey, whereas the Americas gained fruit, rice, wheat, sugar cane, cattle, sheep, pigs, and horses were imported to the American uh, Western Hemisphere. The American Indians did not have any heavy draft animals like oxen or um, cattle, obviously. They didn't even have – they didn't have – Goats or or sheep, or and certainly not horses. The Europeans had to bring sheep and pigs. Yeah, pigs also. They well, I think I think the horse, the fact that they arrived on horseback, uh, made the many native Indian tribes submit themselves to the Spaniard, thinking they were some kind of gods. The Aztecs were scared when they saw the the horses that they had, but eventually the horses escaped, and uh, the American uh, Indians on the plains became expert horsemen with all the escaped horses from Mexico. Boy, do they regret that, huh? In terms of the legacy, and we'll be positive, and then the other flip side, um, it's not just cities, and America has about 30 cities named Columbus, including, by the way, the District of Columbia, which is Washington, D.C., and early times of the the founding fathers were referred to America as Columbia, Columbia University, District of Columbia. Canada has British Columbia, which is a whole province. It's the capital of South Carolina, Columbia, Columbia, South Carolina. Why would they name uh, Ohio, Columbus, Ohio? After Christopher Columbus. Jeez, but how? Why? Where they traveled? It was not just an ethnic thing. It wasn't just Italians who admired Christopher Columbus. There's Columbus, Georgia, and these were all Anglos that admired Christopher Columbus. Just for starting in, fact, in Chicago, there wasn't that big an Italian community yet. Uh, the the people who put on the the world's Colombian exposition in 1893, they were all you know Marshall Fields and Anglo's uh, in Chicago, but they admired Columbus. Wow, incredible! What a phenomenon! Now to think that progressives yeah. want to erase the whole history of that. Yeah.
I don't get it. It was Washington Irving who wrote that book in 1828, which sort of popularized this idea of Columbus as, uh, as uh, you know, leading the way and figuring out that the world was round, which was not true because, as we said, many others knew the world was round. Uh, so also to mention the Columbia River, so and the, and the entire country of Columbia, right? So uh, he's got a big legacy, and uh, historians refer to the pre-Columbian era and the post-Columbian era. And just to, to round out the conversation, when you read that letter, which I encourage people to do, the letter that he writes, which is shared with the king and queen, and that's the St. Angel letter, uh, he talks about how generous and hospitable the Native Americans were. So that was what he was impressed with, and that's why he thought they'd be easily conquered, uh, because they weren't going to fight back, and they didn't have horses, and they didn't have iron. Okay, now yeah, what, guns, germs, and steel—that's the thing. Uh, what about what about the theory that uh, uh, that you said that you didn't really connect this dot here? And tell me if you ran into any of this in your in your research. You said that the that the Jews were expelled out of Spain, right? In April there, of, of 1492. This gentleman told me that because he, I, I well, no, I almost stepped on it there. Uh, <laughs> I almost uh, got into a backstory. He believed that because Italy never came to the New World because they figured that all this wealth was going to be put in uh, Florentine banks anyway. Why right. why spend the money, go over there if it's going to well, end up in our... Plenty of Italians were, were early navigators, like Amerigo Vespucci, right. after whom... They, they, okay, let me finish the story. That, in fact, Columbus. it wasn't Isabella who funded his trip. It was the rabbis of the great commercial bazaars. Well, yeah. And no, where is a big tower that, that she built? By the time Columbus sailed in August, the Jews had already been expelled in April. Okay, this, this is what I'm saying. Did you stumble upon anything th to the effect that Isabella, one of the motivating factors to expel the Jews, wasn't religious at all? It was to not have to pay the debt for funding well, Columbus's voyage. The, she owed them. Nah, nah, they, well, that, I'm sure that was part of it. Could that have been true? All these kings uh, from England. There's a lot of rabbis who believe that they. the Jews when they don't want to have to pay them back. Okay. So that was part of it. But so the trophy... not specifically for this voyage. No? Uh, not they, she had other expenses. She, she, she was just, broke. Just in, on, on January 1 of 1492, the Moors, the Muslim kingdom of Granada, surrendered. And they were allowed to go back to Morocco. And in order to make them surrender, she had to pay troops and she had to buy uh, explosives, gunpowder. So oh, that war was very expensive. She had lots of expenses. Okay, so the truth is that she was broke and she, she was, couldn't have possibly fund. I don't know fund. if she was totally broke, but she was under financial duress. Okay, and so. And I know that a lot of the financiers were Jewish. So there may so have been a connection. My story is holding true. There may have been a connection, but that's not the whole story. They kicked out the Jews because they thought that this was a way of purifying Spain. And that's, they, that's what I'm trying to contest. Ethnic and religious purification. So, Mandy, it's a complex story, and I've, I found that there are multiple ethnic groups that claim Columbus. Right. So, uh, some claim he was Portuguese, Italian, Spanish. They're all kinds. I never heard right. of the, the dispute that he was not Italian. So, but he it's spent clear a lot he was time born in, in Lisbon. Genoa, he, but he the a, question is uh, where were his parents from? So there are all kinds of, uh, you know, that's that's the history. People will, will try to uh, invent or, or take pieces, appropriate pieces of the history. Which... And also, Ferdinand apparently was with a mistress dying somewhere, oh, and they weren't even together during, right. the, were during this two reign. separate kingdoms. And if you look at the flag, it has a, a castle for Castile and a lion for Aragon. That was the Spanish flag in those days. 
to answer your question, Manny, another interesting tidbit, and I'm not sure if I have a definitive answer one way or another. And there have been books that have been written about, you know, there's no surprise here about Columbus's background, but they they were supposed to leave the day before. And one of the reasons why many believe that uh, several of the members of the crew and potentially even Columbus may have been Jewish is they didn't leave the day they were supposed to leave, uh, which was a Jewish holiday. Uh, they waited until uh, the next well, day to leave when they did leave. Members of the crew were Jewish converts or right. forced converts, and Columbus may have been Jewish. I mean, I, I, have, I may have uh, Sephardic Jewish blood myself, but, you know, that's no excuse. Okay, we're going to end the story. Now, see, now he, just because I wanted to be part of this story with my birthday. That's right. And he interjected himself as Sephardic Jew. Partly, only in part. Okay. Gentlemen, it is a pleasure traveling the world and traveling a thousand years of history uh, to be continued next week. You bet. Thank you. Okay, please tell us your website and let the audience know where they can find out more about you. Thank you for that, Manny. So the website is statutesandstories.com. And statutes is spelled with three T's. That's S-T-A-T-U-T-E-S, statutesandstories.com. And you can read about several of the topics that we touched on today. Thank you very much, everybody. Okay, take care, my friends. And Thank remember, you. you're listening to the Statutes and Stories segment here on Blink Radio 94.5 FM, where we blink once, we said it, blink twice, you missed it. Stay free, my friends. Back tomorrow.